Hello and welcome back to Syria's Lost Generation, a podcast about young Syrians displaced by war. This show is a production of Foreign Policy in partnership with World Vision and the Syrian American Medical Society. I'm your host, Lynn Cunningham. Today, we'll take it to the outskirts of Aleppo, Syria's largest city, where relative calm prevails after years of conflict. Like many cities in Syria, Aleppo is ancient, continuously inhabited for thousands of years. Its medieval-era citadel is instantly recognizable and has seen the rise and fall of civilizations and empires. The war has torn apart Aleppo and its suburbs, with various factions competing for control at different stages of the fighting. Rebels in the area have fought the Syrian government, the Islamic State, the occupying Turkish army, and militias representing Syria's ethnic Kurdish population, which received support from the US. There's also the government itself, which recaptured the city of Aleppo in 2016 with the aid of the Russian military and Iranian-supported militias like Hezbollah. We're joined once again by journalist David Enders, who has covered the war from inside Syria and interviewed people for this episode from his home in Beirut. David, what can you tell us about Aleppo and the surrounding region? Aleppo is is very much a microcosm of the larger conflict, and it kind of became a bellwether for the rest of the country as, as the war started. Uh, at the beginning of the revolution, the government managed to keep a, a pretty good handle on dissent there, and it maintained a lot of support from the, the city's merchant class. And then in 2012, anti-government fighters largely from the rural areas outside of Aleppo invaded the city and, and started the battle for control. And that would last for four years until the government eventually, with, with the help of uh, the Russian military, was able to take the city back. And did you spend much time there during the war? I was lucky to have traveled there before the war and, and to see the city before much of it was destroyed. I, I also reported from there in 2012, but I largely tried to avoid working in Aleppo if I could. Um, it was dangerous. It was extremely dangerous. It was a free-for-all. In some of the other areas, I had I had much better contacts in case... I got into trouble, but in Aleppo, you had people coming into the city to fight who even even the local people didn't know. And it was the first place where I also saw a large number of fighters from outside Syria, which, which initially when people started talking about people coming from outside Syria to fight, we were wondering if this was being exaggerated. And then Aleppo was the first place I saw large numbers of non-Syrian fighters, and, and this was another reason to to be concerned and and to pause it was it was quite unnerving to see people come in and and make the conflict their own sometimes against the the wishes of the the people who they claim to be fighting for or protecting okay so in this episode we're going to hear from Syrians who were internally displaced by the war they remain in their own country but for one reason or another can't go back home some 7 million Syrians are internally displaced that's a huge number when you consider that the population of the country overall is less than 18 million. We're starting on the eastern side of Aleppo, in a town called Al-Bab, which itself was captured by revolutionaries in 2012, before the Islamic State took it over in 2013. Not everything in Syria is bad news. 
24-year-old Ahmed, who lives in Al-Bab, recently got engaged. Both Ahmed and his bride-to-be are displaced. The wedding may be after one month, inshallah. You are invited. <laughs> She's from a suburb of Damascus. He's from the town of Kefir Sijna, in Idlib province to the west of Aleppo. They met when Ahmed was living in Jindaris, another locus of mass displacement. Kefir Sijna sits just to the west of the country's main north-south highway, known as the M5. The highway became a site of frequent battles as the government and rebels both sought to deprive one another of easy movement from one place to another. A pair of Syrian government military bases near Kefir Sijna turned it into a front line almost immediately, but the town was held by rebels for most of the war. I studied my uh, secondary school, let me say, in my village in uh, 2013. In that time, my village was targeted many times by uh, warplanes, by uh, artillery bombs, by missiles, by many weapons. And we didn't flee our uh, village till 2019, you know. While Ahmed stays in Al-Bab for his work as a translator and videographer for humanitarian organizations, his parents are displaced in the nearby village of Darit Ezza, on the other side of Aleppo, in Idlib province. Al-Bab is controlled by Turkish-backed rebel factions. These groups once fought the Syrian government, but are now largely deployed as Turkish proxies in a buffer zone to prevent Kurdish militia from holding territory near the Turkish border. But it's better than Idlib, where uh, Al-Nusra Front is controlling. I think uh, they are uh, a little bit extremist. They said that democracy is something uh, prohibited. Jabhat al-Nusra, or the Nusra Front, was founded as al-Qaeda's Syrian branch and quickly became one of the most powerful rebel groups in the country. It's emerged as one of the most effective resistance groups against the government. Like the people who joined the first protests in 2011, the Nusra Front also sought to overthrow the government of Bashar al-Assad. But the group had a different idea about the type of government that would replace Assad's. The U.S. State Department says the al-Nusra Front is trying to hijack the conflict for its own purposes. They and many of the groups that would eventually take over parts of Aleppo were calling for a state based on religious law. From 2011 to 2014, the revolution was so strong, the revolutionary forces controlled over 85% of the Syrian lands. But 2014 and 15 was a focal point when the Islamic groups entered like ISIS. So the revolutionary factions or the opposition forces decreased so much and vanished. In 2014, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria came into existence, with Raqqa as its capital. ...dominates the capital of the Islamic State group's self-styled caliphate. This is the western front line of the battle. When this group entered Syria, they told the opposition forces that we are your friends, we will help you to defeat the regime and stuff like that. We lost many areas. Let's give an example, Al-Raqqa. You know Al-Raqqa. Al-Raqqa was controlled by the opposition forces, moderate faction and a good military force. But ISIS attacked Al-Raqqa and this moderate faction was vanished, was destroyed. I don't entirely agree with this. Jebed al-Nusra was heavily represented in the battle for Raqqa against the government. But even they were quickly supplanted there by ISIS, which at one point controlled an area straddling Iraq and Syria that was home to almost 10 million people. Uh, I had a friend from the primary school. 
he was called Abdullah, Abdullah. Abdullah joined ISIS when he was 15 or 16 just. And he went to Iraq and he commits suicide. And in his mind and in, in his thought, he is a martyr and he will uh, win the afterlife. But that's totally wrong. But how do you think people are convinced to join these groups? Or what, what is it that makes these groups have influence or appeal to, to people like your friend? These groups manipulate the emotions of the youngs on the teenagers who doesn't have the political wisdom. They just follow these orders because this is something good and this is our religion. But not our religion doesn't encourage this things and these organizations. ISIS is not the only group in Syria to have recruited child soldiers. The list even includes the SDF, allies of the U.S. military. Child recruitment is another danger experienced by the generation of Syrians that has largely known only a life during wartime. These pictures show the so-called Islamic State creating a new army in Syria and Iraq. Channel 4 News has gathered the first evidence of a systematic campaign to embed ISIS ideology into the next generation, including the recruitment of children as young as eight as soldiers and suicide bombers. Nina Nepasova is the Global Director for Humanitarian Policy and Advocacy for World Vision International, an NGO that provides aid to Syrians across the region. Today, Syria is one of the most dangerous and deadly places to be a child. We have uh, seen children killed and maimed. Attacks on schools have been perpetrated in very high numbers. And same goes for attacks on health facilities. And yes, we have also seen children being recruited and used by armed actors across the board. And um, this number for some time has been rising. We're aware of cases where children have uh, been offered financial or material incentives to join armed groups. In some cases, uh, we have heard of children being pushed um, and influenced um, by community members. Many are recruited by force and um, many see no other choice, having nothing left. And imagine just seeing your loved ones killed in front of your eyes, feeling scared, hungry, alone, and feeling very angry for what's been done to you. It would be four years before ISIS was largely defeated in Syria, after the US and others waged an intensive campaign against it. Recent reports, however, suggest the group continues to use child soldiers as it seeks to rebuild. Some of those recent recruits have come from Al-Hol, a desolate refugee camp in eastern Syria that includes many ISIS supporters and that the international community has yet to find a solution for. As for Raqqa, it became another decimated city as it switched hands once more. To be honest, the conflict is bigger than they think. It's not between the opposition forces and the regime. In simple words or short words, we are a victim for the global conflicts. The solution of this matter or this issue in general is uh, with the USA. USA, we can uh, solve this problem. <laughs> I hope Joe Biden uh, would be a good president. Ahmed's optimism about the United States reminds me of the early days of the war. Syria's civil conflict is now three U.S. presidents old, 
and it's hard to argue that U.S. involvement has been terribly productive. In fact, it's been a disaster by virtually any measure. When the protests began in 2011, Robert Ford, the U.S. ambassador to Syria, made a point of visiting with demonstrators in the city of Hama. To show solidarity with the residents there, the Syrians are furious, saying, The presence of the U.S. ambassador in Hama is clear evidence of the United States' involvement in current events in Syria. It was certainly a brave thing to do, and it sent a definitive message to many Syrians that the U.S. would support their revolution to the end. The Obama administration, however, was simply unwilling to do that. It is not just my view, but the view of my closest military and civilian advisors, that that would be a mistake. For months in 2012, almost every rebel group I met asked me why the U.S. wasn't backing the revolution more forcefully. Some asked me to call the embassy. Others, half-jokingly, suggested kidnapping me and demanding U.S. support. Many pointed to the stand Ford had taken. The war has cost Ahmed's family their livelihood, including their family home in Kefir Sijna and his father's business running a farm and selling agricultural equipment. We had an olive farm, 200 trees. I think all of them was destroyed because of the bombardment, or maybe they were cut down. The Syrian regime soldiers, they stole all the properties, including trees. They got the trees to sell wood for heating, for fuel. Because uh, the fuel prices in Syria is so high in the liberated and regime areas, so people are using wood and coal and plastic, everything that can give fire. Nonetheless, Ahmed is optimistic for his future. There are rumors that the government might pull troops from his village, and the Syrian government has announced it will hold presidential elections this year. He believes both sides are tired and looking for compromise. I think the situation will be a little bit better because there will be uh, elections for the new president, you know. I heard that in Mars there will be a resolution, musalaha. The regime will get out from many villages. Despite the suffering, Ahmed doesn't agree with his father that the revolution was a failure. He believes eventually the destruction of the last decade will result in a freer Syria. He also knows that he is lucky amongst those who have been displaced. He has spent considerable time documenting the conditions in the camps around him. Assalamu alaikum everyone, this is Ahmed Hallaq from One Nation team in Syria. As you can see behind me, this is Masjid Ali Banat, which is going to be a sheltering center for displaced people uh, from Ma'at al-Nu'man, whose city is being bombed right now. Uh, we have equipped the masjid to be uh, a good uh, or a well-served place to serve when people talk about what's happening in Syria right now, they talk about a lost generation, particularly people who are your age, who were just not even adults when the revolution started and then it became a war and now half the country is displaced. Has a generation of Syrians been lost? Yes, I think there is. Ten generations that lost their lives during the revolution. Everyone who was born after 2011, he lost every life aspect, every life, basics of life. They lost learning, they lost health care, they lost even shelter. Some people, they were born in the tents, in the camps. And where you are, there are lots of refugees. 
right? Yeah, IDP camps, internally displaced people. And what are those camps like? It's like random camps, and they depend on the aid from the UNICEF, from the UN. They can't live without these aids. A family receives a food box every month. They can't work, they can't handle their lives. So they're just living from these aids. World Vision's Neposova says that the difficulty getting aid to those in need represents another of the international community's failings in Syria. I uh, was working uh, with World Vision as the representative to the United Nations on Humanitarian Affairs when we first started negotiating and attempting to develop a resolution to grant cross-border access um, into Syria so that we could reach people in need. But essentially, the fact that we even had to do that meant to me that the Security Council wasn't doing its job, providing security and peace to Syria's children. And they have failed for 10 years. And to this day, we're still continuing to ask for their permission to do cross-border access. And even that, I feel like they have been failing to grant to us, even though the needs in Syria are growing. And in 2014, we had four cross-border points that we could use. In 2020, in the middle of a global pandemic that we knew was going to hit Syria really hard and has, they basically took away all cross-bordering points except for one. Just one. On the other side of Aleppo, in the village of Kafir Nuran, lives 23-year-old Sahar. She has been able to return to the village where she grew up, as it remains under control of Turkish-backed rebels, at least for now. We migrated several times. The first time was in 2015 to Aleppo. The second time, we migrated to the countryside of Aleppo because they bombed our area a lot, and it was destroyed by the regime. So we moved several times in four months. We changed around 10 houses, and none were suitable to live in, and the rent was high. Sahar works at a medical center in Kafr Nuran and is a month from graduation in her studies to become a midwife. Part of a program across northern Syria, led by an NGO to train medical staff, even as doctors have fled Syria en masse. I feel, uh, I feel very happy. I feel happy when the baby is born in good health and when we provide them with help and care for the children and for the mother. Our job is the most beautiful job, especially that when we are providing help, we are helping two souls, not only one. The country's health infrastructure is another victim of the war, with hospitals being destroyed by fighting, often deliberately. One second, rescuers are digging desperately in the rubble of an obliterated hospital. Next, they're running for their lives, and other salvos coming in. The medical center where Sahar works is funded and supported by the Syrian American Medical Society, an NGO founded by a group of Syrian doctors living in the U.S. in 2011. The work SAMS does underscores how devastated Syria's medical infrastructure has become, says Dr. Mafadal Hamadi, who is the president of the organization and recently traveled to Syria to see the situation firsthand. The health infrastructure during the Syrian war was targeted and targeted repeatedly 
because it was used as a strategic weapon and a military weapon, medical care was weaponized systematically by the government and its allies. So uh, these guys here are very much used to their facilities being targeted and their life put in danger day in and day out. SAMS is largely present in northwest Syria, and their exponential growth since 2011 is a testament to the needs of the people they serve. In 2011, our budget was $750,000. It reached its peak in 2017 at $42 million, and this last year, we spent $36 million. So it grew exponentially. And, uh, you know, yesterday I visited the uh, neonatal intensive care and I saw the babies in the uh, incubators. And uh, these incubators are literally the reason why these babies are surviving. That's all in addition to the constant threat of displacement. Like many of the families Sahara works with, she has experienced the constant movement of the last nine years. The medical center where she works has been a target as well. Now, I've faced a lot of difficulties in the academy. The first time, we migrated. I had exams, and we migrated. So I left the academy and went with my parents to migrate. And my brother got shot in the area where we were, and my uncle died in the last strike. And concerning education, I got back to the academy after skipping it for one month. I went back alone, although the academy was threatened as well by shelling. But I got back to it, and I lived with my friends until I finished, and now I'm about to graduate. Many people who initially fled have returned to the village, despite the constant threat of airstrikes and artillery. Kefir Nuran lies a mile from territory controlled by the Syrian government. The town was subjected to intense airstrikes during a Russian bombing campaign last year, destroying homes and killing dozens, including one of Sahara's uncles. It also forced the medical center where she studies to change its location. But everyone is waiting for a final assault on the last areas the rebels hold. Now, the situation is stable, but we are still threatened, especially because we are the front line. We are next to the regime, and that's why we are threatened. So, in any moment, we would have to flee or they might hit the area. That level of uncertainty is breathtaking. Not knowing at any moment if you might have to flee, and that's been the case in many parts of Syria for nearly a decade now. Thank you for joining us, and please join us next episode, when we'll visit Idlib, the last province in Syria completely under rebel control, and the likely scene of the government's final offensive to reconsolidate its hold over the country. Syria's Lost Generation is a production of foreign policy in partnership with World Vision International and the Syrian American Medical Society. Both are non-political groups purely focused on the humanitarian aspects of the crisis. Our producers are Rob Sachs, Alison Meekham, and Dan Efron. David Ender's report of the stories you're hearing on the show. Thanks to Laura Gemmel, Josephine El Haddad, Elias Abuata, John Doutzenberg, Lobna Hassari, and Angie Maraud for helping bring the series to life. 
Also thanks to Final Step Studio in Beirut for production help. I'm Liam Cunningham. <laughs>